It's the final episode for two weeks of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We're taking a break. Our staff has vacation time coming, and we want to make sure they take it. So we're going to pause for a couple of weeks, and we'll be back two weeks for Monday to start discussing the news again. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon and Layla Tassi. Laura Johnston's already started taking that time off, so she's not with us. Jane and Layla, you have off next week, and then I'm off. And so it's a great time of the year. I hope you get good weather and and enjoy your your days, your well-earned days. Uh, I'm sure we will all miss each other starting the day each day with our robust discussion of the news. I'm going to have to wake my kids up early to talk about the news with them (laughs) just to stay in the habit. Well, you have my phone number. If we all stop to have withdrawal, we can get together and chat away. Let's start chatting today. What's the great news for Ohioans who were overpaid unemployment benefits or had their benefits stolen by scammers during the pandemic? Jane Cahoon, it has been ages since we talked about just a screwed up unemployment system in Ohio, but they're starting to sort things out at a extravagant cost. (laughs) It appears they are. I don't know if this is going to be universally regarded as great news because I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who were mistakenly overpaid who feel that they shouldn't have to do anything because this wasn't their fault. But at least it looks like they can avoid having to pay this money back. They're they're soon going to be able to apply for waivers with the state. So in the coming days, the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services is going to send out emails and letters to unemployment claimants who received overpayments. Uh, about how they can request this waiver. Uh, And then they'll start processing them this summer. This is according to Matt Damschroeder, the uh, person in charge now of the ODJFS. But um, this affects tens of thousands of Ohioans who were told they had to repay the state for benefits that they were mistakenly given, either because of an error by state officials or their employers, not their own fault. So, And this, of course, was during the pandemic when we had this unprecedented number of unemployment claims and all sorts of, uh, as you said, all sorts of problems with this system. But then the other thing that uh, they're working on is they're going they're going to try to offer replacement payments to Ohioans who had their unemployment benefits stolen by scammers. Stam Schroeder said they're actively researching how to send replacement payments to residents who had these unemployment benefits stolen. Uh, Apparently, the federal government already offers replacement payments for the pandemic assistance that that were take that uh, payments that were taken by fraudsters. I'm not sure how many people this affects because, you know, some people didn't really get their unemployment money stolen that they were entitled to. They were people like, you know, with jobs who who got their identity stolen. So, uh, you know, I don't. I don't exactly know how many people that affects, but just to give you an idea of the scope of this problem, between March of 2020 and May of 2021, about $444 million in federal pandemic um, assistance claims were paid to scammers, and then um, another $21 million in traditional state-based jobless benefits were were, uh, paid, were found to be fraudulent. So... Um, you know, they, they also have David DeVillers working with them. He's the former U.S. attorney in the Southern District, and they're really trying to get a better handle on this, on stopping this fraud thing. Um, he said they've recovered about $150 million of 
money stolen, but there's only been three arrests. And he, he said it's going after these scammers is going to take years and years and years. You know, a lot of them are overseas. So, you know, <clears throat> that's the situation. Yeah, I, 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 you, you did mention something that I think is key. Most of the people that felt victimized in the unemployment fraud were people who were working, who got a notice that they had applied for unemployment. Uh, and they were frustrated. The state set up a fairly simple reporting tool. It happened to me, as we've discussed. And you never heard anything again. And so I get the occasional email still based on a column I wrote way back now, more than a year ago about this, from people saying, so what's the deal? Does Has this had a long-term effect on me? Is somebody applied in my name, I reported the fraud and no one has responded. They didn't really address any of that yesterday. And that's probably the bigger source of concern for people. Right, right. But, you know, as you said, at least they're sort of trying to get the house on in order. The wait times are have been shortened and, you know. I was surprised they didn't let John Houston provide the good news because he was stuck <laughs> every day last year having to provide the bad news it would have been fair just to give him the chance to say hey you know all the times i said we'd get it fixed hey we're getting it fixed but yeah, he probably just still wants to be as far away from it as possible <laughs> it is radioactive you're listening to this week in the cle what more do we know about the slipshod investigation of the cmha police killing of 19 year old arthur keith by a gunshot to his back and the reasons Attorney General Dave Yost does not see anything there for a jury to consider in the matter. Leila Tassi, we talked about the outrage of this thing yesterday because we learned they had not and interviewed the witnesses. Right. The only person whose account was considered in this was the officer who said Arthur Keith pointed a gun at him, even though he shot him in the back. So what more did we learn as we pressed on this yesterday, as we promised we would? So there have been some very interesting developments here. After the announcement yesterday, uh, attorneys for Arthur Keith's family held a news conference during which they called upon the Department of Justice to investigate CMHA police, and they condemned the lack of investigation prior to presenting this case to the grand jury. Well, after that happened... Cleveland police and the attorney general's office refuted the claim that they never tried to interview witnesses. They argue that, in fact, they had tried to reach out to the family's attorney, Stanley Jackson, several times during the investigation, particularly after Jackson said back in December that he had found additional witnesses to the shooting. But CPD says Jackson never provided information to investigators, including the witnesses' names or how to reach them. And a CPZ spokesperson said there's documentation in the police file that shows how investigators had reached out to witnesses in Jackson. That file was supposed to become public after the grand jury decision not to bring charges against Griffiths. But of course, you know, CPD hasn't released it yet, so we haven't seen it. Uh, Jackson says, no way. He said he spoke to two detectives about the witnesses early this year and did provide them with the information to contact the key witnesses, especially a 15-year-old boy named Jazir Melton, who has publicly said that he saw the shooting. He never saw Arthur Keith with a gun. Jackson says you can do a cursory Google search and find Jazir making these, these statements, but the investigators did nothing with that information and did not attempt to contact him. The attorney right. general's office also says they asked Jackson in June if there were any other witnesses to interview before presenting to the grand jury. And the AG's office says they never heard back from Jackson. Again, Jackson says that's false. 
He says he spoke directly with the assistant AG who was handling the case and asked him if he had interviewed Jazir Melton. And the the assistant said that they wouldn't say whether they had or hadn't, but Jackson knew he hadn't because he was close with, in close contact with Jazir's family. So, All right, but stop, stop. Dave should be ashamed of himself because this is a red herring. It's not up to Jackson to provide witnesses to homicide investigators. Right. They're homicide investigators. They're supposed yeah, to go know, knock right? on doors. Right. So, so this is this, this is a dodge. What they did yesterday was was say, hey, look at the bright, shiny object over there. Pay no attention to the fact right. we did not do our jobs. A homicide investigator is supposed to get off his butt, leave the building, and find the witnesses. Exactly. If they call Jackson and Jackson's not helpful, you find another method. You don't say... Well, we made a few phone calls. Can't reach him. We'll just take the word of the officer. Right. There's I mean, no way. To, there's a dead person here. Where is the sense of justice and duty? What is Dave Yost thinking? It's not the first time that that there's been a very suspicious no bill where where you don't even take the case to a jury. Shouldn't a jury be the one to decide whether or not there's a crime here? Yeah, you're right. And and we are hearing that. You said we are hearing that this is not the first time the, the AG's office has no build a police shooting without a proper investigation. So we're we're chasing that as we speak. That is our next step. We are not going to let this get swept under the rug. This is just unconscionable that the police did not look at how many months have passed. Our reporters could find these witnesses. <laughs> well, I these just are professional investigators who have so badly failed at their duty in this case. And uh, I swear, take to the streets and protest. That's what this calls but, for. But yesterday was subterfuge to make this all about the lawyer, not whether or not he was available or not. That that has nothing to do with what should have happened. And people should be clear on that. The homicide detectives have a duty to find the witnesses, no matter what it takes, before they allow a case to be to be cleared the way this has. So interesting, a very interesting developments. I don't think it's the last we've heard of this, and it's not the last that we're going to be pressing on it. Right. This week in the CLE. What drove the independent monitor overseeing police reform in Cleveland to ask Aisha Hardaway to rejoin his panel? Leila Tassi, this has been one controversial decision, the, mm -hmm. the kind of forced resignation of Hardaway because she made some comments on a, a local radio broadcast. And the community outrage seems to have worked. That's right. This guy was feeling the heat. <laughs> so the consent decree monitor, Hassan Aden, had tried to reassign Aisha Hardaway from her position on the civilian oversight panel to more of a community relations role after she had made some comments on, on a radio show about police that he and city officials felt called into question her objectivity. So instead, she resigned. But Aiden dramatically underestimated the community response to Hardaway's forced resignation. When the community started calling for his job, he started backpedaling. He released a statement Thursday saying he had heard the credible voices of the community in support of Hardaway and has asked her to keep working with him. Aiden said the Norman S. Minor Bar Association, Black Lives Matter, and the Cleveland chapter of the NAACP connected with, with one of his core beliefs which is that community is key to accomplishing the goals of reform and constitutional policing. He said he had met with, with Hardaway and discussed this, but Hardaway is thinking it over. She said Thursday that she hadn't had time to consider his, his uh, uh, mea culpa, <laughs> and she will. 
and we'll see what she decides. Uh, the comments that Hardaway made, which are at the heart of this, were on April 21st. That was the day after the Minneapolis jury convicted Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd. Hardaway said on IdeaStream that policing, quote, is pathologically violent and particularly brutal in its interaction with black people. So Gregory White, who's the city's consent decree implementation coordinator, said on Thursday the city still has its concerns about Hardaway's objectivity, but they have confidence in Aiden and see this matter as one between him and Hardaway at this point. So we'll what? see if she uh, if she accepts the uh, the offer to return. Yeah, it's got to be a tough decision for her, though, because, I mean, she's been so seriously disrespected in this, in this. I mean, she's she's somebody with a long history and has a lot of respect for her career. And she was treated so badly that, that she it might be mm-hmm. too difficult to come back. On the other hand, she does seem to have a real sense of public duty and public service. And so maybe that'll help her overcome the, the hurt of being so so badly disrespected it's a fascinating development no matter what happens uh, it shows that the community and its outrage matters maybe that'll also matter in the failure of police and the attorney general to fully investigate mm. the shooting of arthur keith something we've talked about previously you're listening to this week in the cle is ohio house speaker bob cup already playing games with redistricting is this why he wanted a legal slush fund to hire his own lawyers for redistricting lawsuits? Jane Cahoon, we have our first redistricting lawsuit. <laughs> yes, we do. You know, I, I, we've said this before. I, I think we just cannot have too many eyes on this process, given what happened 10 years ago when the Republicans holed up in a hotel room they called the bunker and uh, devised this map that guaranteed them a disproportionate number of seats in Congress for every single election since then. But anyway, that's history. But the ACLU of Ohio would say that Cup's office is playing games by stonewalling public records requests. Uh, and so they, they filed a suit this week in the Ohio Supreme Court seeking an order to release these records. Uh, they include emails or or any other redistricting related records from cup state representative bill seitz who's the uh, the number two leader republican leader in the house and christine morrison the the ohio house gop chief of staff the aclu says the house has really flouted its duty under the law to provide records in a timely manner public records and that they're withholding some records with just bogus justification, and they're refusing to release some other records just altogether. So it's not surprising that the ACLU is the one who um, stepped forward here. They were among the groups that pushed for the reformed redistricting system that that's supposed to be used this year for the first time um, in this once every ten year process. They so you know that they had requested voter maps and other voter data in addition to these emails and um, party records and so forth. But, and that was in February. And then over the following months, the House Republicans denied some of their requests as overly broad. And in other instances said, you know, some of these emails were protected by attorney client privilege or legislative privileges, which, uh, you know, allow them to keep their messages secret with legislative staff. But, um, you know, the ACLU is really pushing on this. And of course, we haven't heard any response from Cup's office. Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating that there's the lawsuit. Who will defend? As we know, Cup tried to put money into the budget so that he and his Senate counterpart could go hire private attorneys at any rate they want 
to to inter, intervene or defend in these lawsuits. Mike DeWine vetoed that because it's the attorney general's job to defend the state in lawsuits. So is Dave Yost going to come out and, and fight <laughs> against releasing public records? I mean, this is a fascinating battle. They're public records. They need to turn them over immediately. And they're not. It's And I just want to point out, it's not surprising that Bill Seitz's name is involved in more shenanigans. It seems like every evil cause that exists in Ohio, he's involved. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know if Yost, it, if it's his responsibility to defend the legislative branch in something like this. I mean, it's his job to defend Ohio law, but um, I'm not sure how this works out. Oh, so maybe they'll they will be able to hire private attorneys. Well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay. But, yeah. Well, good luck, ACLU. I have a feeling that for the next few months we're going to be in redistricting hell. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How many Cuyahoga County judges have volunteered for a pilot program to compare their criminal sentences based on race and other factors, and how does that compare to Summit County? Leila Tassi, I think we need to keep track of all the judges who don't participate in this right. at election time. <laughs> that was my thought, too. What are what do they have to hide, too? That's That was what I was wondering. So the Ohio Criminal Sentencing Commission is developing a database over the next several years and has created a website where the public will be eventually able to view and compare criminal sentences across jurisdictions to determine racial disparities and whether some judges are harsher or more lenient in certain kinds of cases and stuff like that. And Cuyahoga, Cuyahoga and Summit counties will be among the pilot counties for this. Eight judges have volunteered to participate from Cuyahoga. Judges uh, Rick Bell, Cassandra Collier-Williams, Emily Hagan, William McGinty, John J. Russo, Nancy Margaret Russo, Deborah Turner, and William F. B. Vaudry have all agreed to participate. And to get at the question of how does it compare to Summit, by comparison, all of the judges in Summit have agreed to take part in the pilot, which is really interesting. So the next step is a site visit during which members of the Sentencing Commission will observe sentencing hearings, court proceedings, and talk with judges and court staff. And the commission is trying to kind of gather information from the counties that are participating to figure out how to design the database platform. They want to look at how the counties enter sentences and conviction data into existing court records so that they can adapt the Ohio sentencing data platform in a way that's easy for county courts to use. Obviously, I mean, this is a very cool idea. I would love to be able to to look at this data, but it will have its limitations, right? It will take years to amass a useful amount of data here. There's also the fact that Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor, who's a huge proponent of this initiative, will retire next year before it's fully built. So will that make a difference? Will we see it kind of peter out? Also, it will only draw on data moving forward. So the database doesn't have the capability of drawing in historical data by, to compare and of course, with so few judges participating, like we said, what what's the value of the data overall uh, in this pilot? I mean, are we just going to, I don't know. So that's, well, not, I mean, I, I, it's a great I, idea, but yeah, I limited. There is value <laughs> for any judge that gets into it because it's accountability. There's a long held belief that there's a racial disparity in sentencing across the land, not just here. And, and now they're putting their stats up so that you can see, and you know, are some, do some take, sex crimes more seriously than others. Some take crimes against children more seriously than the others, or are they lax? I'm just kind of surprised at the number of judges who didn't volunteer in Cuyahoga County, because like you said, what are they hiding from? They should, this should right. be automatic. 
Uh, you shouldn't even have to volunteer. It ought to be something that we that we automatically do. Anyway, that this will become an election problem for them because if they're not volunteering to do it, we will trumpet that as far as we can mm-hmm. because that does seem like they're trying to hide. And actually, what we ought to do is just go look at them ourselves, like pick any three of them and start doing our own analysis of what their Ooh, sentencing has been to, to see strategy. what they're trying to hide. Uh, and I salute all those that have volunteered. Good for them. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Has J.D. Vance changed the landscape of the Ohio Senate race now that he has repudiated his former searing criticisms of Donald Trump? Jane Cahoon, I'm so disappointed that we have yet another Republican Senate candidate who cares nothing more than getting the benediction of Donald Trump. Can't we have one Republican Senate candidate that stands apart and says, I really don't care what Donald Trump did. He tried to overthrow our country. I'm sorry, Chris. That person doesn't exist yet. (laughs) Um, But to answer your question, yeah, in some ways, J.D. Vance has definitely changed the landscape simply because there's all kinds of buzz about him. He's got national name recognition and he's he's got a pile of money behind him, like $10 million that Silicon Valley billionaire Peter Thiel donated to this super PAC that's supporting Vance. But anyway, he's gotten a lot of, you know, national media are doing interviews with him. And one outlet, Axios, declared that he would be instantly talked about as a presidential possibility if he were to win the Ohio Republican primary for the Senate next year. That seems a bit over the top and a bit premature to me. Yeah, they're (laughs) out of their minds. I don't know where that's coming from. That whole article was way too rosy about J.D. Vance. I don't think he has anywhere near that kind of attraction in Ohio. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, But, uh, you know, Axios and others are also saying that this campaign for the U.S. Senate in Ohio is the kind of politics we're going to see in the next couple of election cycles. And I I guess I would agree with that, with the, you know, these culture wars and demonizing big tech, the kind of um, so-called populism of uh, Trump. But, you know, which brings me to the the flip-flop on Trump, as you referred to. Five years ago, Vance called Trump reprehensible, you know, pledging to fight against him and even said on national public radio that he may vote for Hillary Clinton. And, um, you know, he's also criticized him repeatedly on Twitter, you know, lots of tweets he's deleted. Um, But when he was doing interviews for his well-known memoir, Hillbilly Elegy, he, he, uh, he did a lot of this criticism. And one, one tweet said, Trump makes people I care about afraid. Muslims, immigrants, et cetera. Because of this, I find him reprehensible. So, you know, now that he's a Senate candidate, he said, you know, he regrets what he said and he was really wrong about the guy. And then and then he proceeds to, you know, go on the attack against elites like he isn't one of them, you know, and compare himself to Trump, you know, for all this flack that he's catching for now supporting Trump's agenda. And, you know, he basically said, you know, he was never a suck up. Trump doesn't like suck ups because they're weak, you know, and he said he knows people will criticize him. He said, but I think my advantage in this race is that I'm talking about real issues and 
that's the most important but he's thing. not so he's talking I, about I, getting <laughs> donald trump's approval it's another candidate without a spine without integrity without the character to stand behind his beliefs so you know everything he said five years ago he repudiates it who does that is there anything you said five years ago that you would turn around now and say, yeah, I take it all back? I mean, where is where is the sense of character and integrity that used to matter in these races? Every one of these candidates has done this. They're all so desperate for Donald Trump's nod of the head that they're willing to sell out their very integrity. Yeah. And, you know, Andrew Tobias is working on a story about this, how they're all, you know, they're all not giving each other a break either for what they said in the past, you know, and I guess they shouldn't. But, you know, it's just that's what this race is about, as you said. It's just pathetic. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did Greater Cleveland see more or fewer fireworks injuries over the July 4th weekend this year? Leila Tassi, this surprised me. I would have thought the answer would have been different. Really? Well, the answer is that there were fewer this year than last year. Between university hospitals and Metro Health, there were nine fireworks-related injuries reported during the whole 4th of July weekend. Data wasn't available for Cleveland Clinic, but a spokesperson told our reporter that they didn't see a significant number of injuries there. Last year, between Metro and UH, there were 17 fireworks injuries reported. Clearly, that statistic, though, was due to the fact that most city fireworks shows were canceled during the pandemic. So it was it was amateur hour in many people's backyards, basically. And, uh, you know, people were getting blown up. So last week, the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission said 15,600 people suffered fireworks-related injuries across the country in 2020. That's up from 10,000 in 2019. So clearly this is a, a trend that, uh, you know, was related to to the, the you know, the complete dearth of, of uh, professional fireworks displays available last year. And this year, everyone's back to, to their city parks and, and, you know, their beach blankets. So yeah, I, the reason I thought there'd be more is there was confusion in the land after the legislature legalized fireworks, but not true. until next year. Uh, a lot of people didn't understand that it, the not until next year part. So I thought more people would buy them and use them. So it's good to see that there were fewer injuries. It just surprised me. You are listening to this week in the CLE. How are the attorneys for mob enforcer Kevin McTaggart responding to prosecutors fighting McTaggart's early release from prison? Jane Cahoon, the early stories on this were about all the people lining up to get this guy out early, early. I mean, he's been in prison for for decades, but uh, now prosecutors are coming back on. Wait, 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 wait. The mob he was involved in killed seven people. This guy did horrendous things. There's a reason he got life in prison. Why would you think letting him out? And so now the tack has taken. It's more about his medical condition. Yeah, this is weird. But anyway, the, the latest filings by by McTaggart's attorneys uh, in this attempt to get him released from the life sentence say that he faces a grave an ongoing risk of contracting a serious illness. Um, they're trying to rebut arguments that the prosecutors made, you know, saying, hey, McTaggart received two doses of the Moderna coronavirus vaccine. He should be protected from serious illness. But uh, McTaggart's attorneys kind of took issue with that and said McTaggart, who's 65 years old, was, you know, that they just noted that the virus has spread quickly, that you know, only about half of the 1,300 
inmates in the federal prison where he is in Michigan receive vaccinations. And they said that the prison system's been struck by a stronger variant that's killed 420 inmates. So, but, um, you know, as you said, this is all sort of a, you know, side issue to what seems more at the heart of this case. And, you know, and that's what McTaggart did and whether he should be worthy of release. I mean, he was this mob enforcer for a large-scale drug ring run by Carmen Zagaria, who was a mafia associate, he, and he was the henchman to uh, mobster Danny Green. And um, so, you know, he he prosecutors said he took part in these acts of extreme violence. You know, at, at least seven people were killed as a result of this ring, and you know, they murdered and dismembered people and, you know, which his lawyers acknowledged, but, you know, but but he's been good since. I mean, look, this it's in federal court, so it's a little off point, but this actually has a role in the ongoing debate about the death penalty, because the people that are that want to abolish the death penalty say, look, life in prison without chance of parole is the alternative. It's cheaper. And if it turns out you made a mistake, it's reversible. But if life in prison isn't life in prison, it, it, it pushes back. And, and I think makes the, the fact that capital punishment would stay more likely because this erodes it. This guy did all the bad stuff that my favorite quote in uh, John Caniglia's original story about this was from former Cleveland police chief Rocco Pelutro. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. I get it that he's done good deeds and reform is part of this, but he did really bad stuff. The kind of stuff where you give up your right to be free in society ever again. So I'm surprised we're having this debate. We are trying to talk to the families of some of his victims, because that is one voice we're not hearing from. Kind of hard, hard yeah. to find them all these years later. But this, I think there was one letter written by a family member who said, "Please don't let this guy out." But um, well, there, just a couple of things, and I don't want to. I'm not like on one side of the debate or the other. But we probably should note that technically, I don't think he was convicted of any murders. But um, so as far as the argument about capital punishment goes, but and then also another uh, now deceased former Cleveland police chief, Edward Kavasic, noted that um, McTaggart was so much under the influence of cocaine that he could not separate actual events from drug induced living nightmares. So I don't know. He, he apparently thought that that should make a difference here. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating case. We'll have to see what the judge does. They got a, an interesting decision to make. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That does it. We're done for two weeks. You guys don't have to talk to me for oh two weeks. Oh, my gosh. Thank, <laughs> Yay. thank you, Jane. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to distant Laura Johnston. And thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Please come back in two weeks when we return.